Okay, whoa. Welcome back, folks. Uh, thank you for again for coming. As I had, I don't know if, I think I said this last week, we were doing the family one today. I switched family and military, which was different than had been advertised. Um, but, and, and somebody had asked if we'll put notes out or put these out from prior weeks, we can do that next week. We can just have all, all five of them out there for, um, for if you want to, to pick them up. So um, let's have a prayer, and then we will get going. So, dear God, as we move into considering uh, that which is, um, is more personal, personal and closer to home, namely the, the families and intimate relationships with which we live, we ask that you will guide us um, through seeing the scope of these in the Bible as well as in a way that can help us help us in our own uh, dearest relationships. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. So again, I, uh, I've, I've got a lengthier handout, and I really appreciated, I really enjoyed having the time last week for you all to ask questions. So I'm going to make myself stop at 1030, even if we're still on the first page, <laughs> uh, although I don't, don't want to be there. But uh, uh, I may go through this earlier material uh, pointing to the scriptures rather than than actually going through them, but I at the end I do always like to pick a couple of them that that we can look at that are that are particularly poignant, especially on family issues. So, um, according to Childs, and again this is Brevard Childs, who was a longtime Old Testament scholar at Yale uh, and and actually a Presbyterian. Um, he points out that the centrality of the family in Hebrew society is attested by the numerous institutions associated with it. And, and I can say to you that any of you all who know, I've got it recorded, Amy, it should be, yeah, uh, that any of you who have any familiarity with, with Jewish culture in, in this country or anywhere where else just know how strong the family life is in Judaism. I mean, it, it is a remarkable um, and beautiful thing to see, although Jack assures me that they're no less fractious and divided as we are, but, but they really, really do have a beautiful commitment to, to family. Um, and, and yet much of what we see, I think it's true that much of what we see in both the Old and the New Testaments uh, is neither encouraging nor in keeping with some of our modern understandings of family or aspirations about family. Uh, and we are approaching this topic at a particular time in our own history, whereas, as I understand it, uh, and this is, this is very recent data, but that, that the marriage rate is down. And when I say our own society, I'm talking about sort of Western American uh, society. The marriage rate is down, and I can attest that from, from the experience of the church. I mean, we... Just about five years ago, it's like people stopped getting married, or stopped, the combination of stop, of delayed marriage and and having marriages outside the church. I mean, we just do two or three weddings here a year in the church, and we did seven or eight. And it's like five years ago they just stopped. I don't know if we got a bad smell or something, but it's really down. Uh, the birth rate is down, the abortion rate is down, the divorce rate is down. Births outside of marriage have been have been rising uh, considerably. Marriage has been extended to same-sex couples. 
the role and consciousness of transgender individuals uh, is now on the radar of parents, school officials, courts, and legislatures. Uh, we have had a period in which family values have played a significant role in national and local politics, yet that seems less so now. And yet judicial politics and appointments around abortion seem to be at a renewed height, if for no other reason than the division on the current Supreme Court and the age of the justices who have supported Roe versus Wade uh, make, make it a time that's possible for change there. Uh, not that the family has ever been so, but it seems today, like so many other things, the, families, the family structure and family life is very much in flux, and perhaps in flux at a relatively high rate of speed. Um, so let's look, at, let's look at some overall depictions of family life in the Old Testament. Uh, there is a terrific and short-lived start to family life in the Old Testament in the Garden of Eden in which the primeval man and woman alone in a lush garden become to one another one flesh and in which the first word that a human being is said to have uttered is the man speaking to the woman in a word of poetry and song this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. That is a wonderful and beautiful start to human language and to family life, and it's all downhill after that as we very quickly hit chapter 3. A snake has used a twisted version of God's word to convince the woman to eat of the fruit of the tree on which God has placed, of the one fruit on which God has placed a restriction. The man follows the woman in due course and partakes of the same forbidden fruit. There is an immediate rift in their relationship in which the man blames the woman, the woman blames the snake, and wedded harmony seems to come to an end as the honeymoon is over for all of humanity. Um, what follows almost immediately, sadly, is the first human murder which is a fratricide, a killing of a brother by a brother, domestic violence. Um, and the occasion is an argument over whose offering to God is superior. Uh, for years, as I've taught the predecessor to my Old and New Testament classes, the disciple classes, this, this list is something I've always included in the lesson because it really is the consequences of the fall through the Tower of Babel and just... I want to read the ones that have family implications to just show you how complicated family life is. After the fall, bodily shame and embarrassment comes in. There's mutual blame between men and women, participants in the conflict. There's enmity between the serpent and the woman and the woman's offspring. There's a fracture in nature. Pain in childbirth, female desire for men, yet dominance by men. Difficulty of labor and work, which obviously impacts family life. They are expelled from paradise. There's labor tension between shepherds and farmers. There's fratricide. Uh, there is uh, multipl multiplication of revenge as Lamech brags to his wives about outdoing Cain in revenge. Uh, so, you know... This is all, these are all consequences of the fall, and these are just the ones that impact family life. Uh, 
neither family life nor human history is off to a good start. Uh, according to Childs, what develops throughout the Old Testament when, once we leave these primeval narratives of Genesis 1 to 11 is the following. That, that Hebrew society and law developed social and religious customs uh, that regulated all important spheres or passages of life. Birth, puberty, marriage, children, property, inheritance, old age, and death. And all of those are universal concerns that occur within the family and which families deal with. Early Hebrew society was patriarchal in its organization with the family head exercising absolute power over its members, much after the fashion of early Bedouin cultures. And again, I I emphasize that because one of the themes that child sees really are are two things, which I think are, are important, and I'm not sure they've gone away, but much of family life and structure reflects the social and legal structures of its day. It's it's not like Hebrews and Christians invented how families are to be structured. And what Child says, which which I th- I think is true, and we see this, is that within that context, um, Jewish faith and and then we would say Christian faith afterwards has an impact on how you live and shape your families pretty much within those structures and then sometimes change them, sometimes changing them. But there's a humanizing impact to faith within some of the more restrictive aspects. Uh, in, in the Old Testament, extended family is extremely important and part of that is simply based on the need to have children. And in a, in a society in which, you know, Life expectancy was about 35 for adults, and many, many infants died in childhood. Just, you know, the need to reproduce and have healthy children for economic support and just for the, for the continuance of of the, of the Jewish race was was important. Uh, so you have all these narratives with their, with an intense concern for the continuance of the family line, and an example of that is is the Rachel and Leah story in Genesis 29, uh, you know, where Isaac and Rebekah, again, have, have trouble having children, and there's, they end out having about 12, I mean, 13 or so, between Rachel and Leah, uh, the two sisters. So, uh, in addition, Israel shared with her neighbors... Uh, Certain forms of legal fiction, and I'm not sure what that means, but but there is a there is a need in Hebrew society to establish a legitimate line of descent and succession. So succession issues, in a way, are more important to them than us because you basically passed land on the family holdings on through uh, you know through your heirs, and so it was important to uh, you know, to to have heirs and heirs early on needed to be male. So in the whole story of 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 Abram and Sarah, when when Sarah couldn't have a child, they they went to uh, Sarah's maid Hagar, 
uh, and they both agreed to this. It was actually uh, Sarah's idea. Sarah had an Egyptian slave girl whose name was Hagar. This is Genesis. I'm in the middle of page four. Um, and Sarah said to Abram, You see that the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, so go into my slave girl. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, the joys of children are frequently extolled by the psalmist. Often these were sons. Uh, God gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. And then in Psalm 127, sons are indeed a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb of a reward. And a lot of this simply has to do with the passing on of the family name and the family property and the, and the continued need for the people of Israel to be a people and be a nation uh, according to the promises of God. Uh, the uh, Within this deep and nomadic concern or tribal concern for procreation and the continuance of the family line, other institutions gradually emerged which continue to impact us in human history today. And one of them is the institution of marriage and the role of women within that. Uh, Marriage gradually became more monogamous in Hebrew society, but it was by no means solely monogamous uh, because polygamy, multiple marriages were sanctioned as well, especially in light of the first wife's sterility. And, you know, as much as we revere these Old Testament characters and people, I mean, David had a bunch of wives, you know, Solomon had a bunch of wives. I mean, there's just multiple marriages that were often as in later times, I guess medieval times, that were often dynastic in nature where you know you would marry a prince of a captured territory so that you ensured your ownership of that territory. So there's just a lot in the Bible in the Old Testament. And, and I don't want to be too... Uh, I, it, I find it hard to... I find, I've always found it hard how you get the phrase family values from the Bible because there are a lot of family values in the Bible, but they're not necessarily values that we hold to anymore or would want to hold to because there's just a lot of, you know, there's just a lot of forces going on that don't have a lot to do with, you know, mom and dad and a picket fence and a station wagon and a minivan living in, if that's our ideal for America, which it probably isn't or doesn't have to be but anyway there's no law in the old testament explicitly forbidding more than one wife but increasing monogamy became the rule polygamy was severely criticized especially after king solomon though it was largely for anti-syncretic syncretic syncretistic reasons basically solomon is not so much criticized for having all these wives as for the fact that they were non-Jewish. They worshipped the Baals, and as is the case today, the religion of the woman usually determines what the man does. And so Solomon was criticized for losing his faith and corrupting the faith of Israel, not because of multiple marriages, but because the marriages led Israel away from the worship of, of, of Yahweh. So, 
Um, on page five, um, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna walk you through these. I've, I've included the passages here, and I'll just try to point out the few verses that, that matter. Uh, in the Old Testament, divorce is generally fiercely criticized. Uh, in Micah, the Lord was a witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you've been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did not God make her, um, for I hate divorce, says the Lord. Um, a, a really severe critique of a male for being unfaithful outside of marriage and for divorce. Uh, women retained a subordinate role in the family and they could be divorced by their husbands. Um, you may have heard this before, but... but uh, in, in some of the more primitive societies, uh, a man could divorce. A, there's something in the Midrash that I remember of, you know, even if a woman burnt the toast, I don't know if they had toasters then, that that would be grounds for divorce. Uh, that's not, you know, Deuteronomy softens that a bit. Suppose a man enters into a marriage, but she does not please him because he finds something object, objectionable, and so he writes her a certificate of divorce puts it in her hand, sends her out of his house, then she leaves his house. That's pretty severe. He does have to put it in writing. There's some sense that it has to be a, a legal process. But then later, I mean, also in Deuteronomy, there are some limited protections that begin to come in for women. Uh, if a man makes up charges against her, then uh, he's not allowed to do that. Uh, if the elders of the town shall shall take the man and punish him. Uh, women, we see in numbers, it did develop that again, contrary to the to the dominant way of the day, that women could inherit property, but only if uh, if they then married within the tribe. There was concern about keeping the property within the tribe. So if they married outside the tribe, if they had inherited property from a spouse that had died and married and then remarried within the tribe, they could they could do that. But if they married outside the tribe, they couldn't. Uh, any vow, I'm on page six now, could be rendered invalid by her husband or her father. And then there's a, a famous passage in uh, and this is the last one we'll look at at this section, but there's a famous passage in Proverbs 31, 10 to 31, the capable wife or the good wife uh, who can find. This is, this is the end of the book of Proverbs, and it is an acrostic poem, which means every line starts with the next letter of the alphabet. So it's a highly structured poem. And, and you all have probably heard this. It is, it is deeply meaningful. Uh, to women for whom motherhood and and family um, have meant a lot, it is something that that younger women often chafe under, and it's certainly come in, into critique from feminist uh, scholars. And yet, some feminist scholars really hold up hold it up. And the reason they do is is because of a few lines in here, not not many, but a few lines that really show both an economic and a leadership role 
for women, you know, within this psalm and therefore within this society. Uh, a capable wife who can find she is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts her, and he will have no lack of gain. It's clearly that he benefits from from this. But down in verse 16, she considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. Uh, in 26, down at the bottom, she opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. For even though in in wisdom is a late development in Israel, and and it is often personified as female for uh, for a book in, in the book of Proverbs, it opens with a father's advice to a son. And it's the passing on of wisdom, male to male, father to son. But it ends with this poem, which is a a pan, P-A-E-N, to a wise woman. And so for the end of Proverbs to say uh, the teaching of wisdom is on her lips represents something that I think develops in the book, which is a gradual uh, expanding of women beyond father to son and uh there's even a theory of a scholar that I like very much who basically says uh, a thread in the book is, is this young boy who is being taught wisdom by his father at home going to grow up to be wise enough to be married to a woman like this? And that's kind of a neat thing because, because she, uh, she is a wise woman here at the end of Proverbs. Um, in the end, she looks well to the ways of her household, does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her happy or blessed. Her husband, too, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. And then I love this, I love this last thing. Uh, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, who holds the Lord in deepest respect, is to be praised. And that is the entire theme of wisdom literature, is to fear the Lord. The beginning of wisdom is to fear the Lord. Uh, Give her a share in the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the city gates, not just her husband who has been praised earlier. So... Uh, again, I think this is an example of how if you read the Old Testament as a whole, you can see some cracks in the patriarchy or the patriarchal system and a gradual sort of some statements and, and some narratives in which women are held up and, and, and kind of a harbinger of the kind of equality that, that is important to us and in, in Western societies today, but I, but it's you know you got to dig for it. It's not the it's not the major theme and expression of the Old Testament, um, and I think it's always a, I think it's always a question for us today, in as we read the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, is how much of what we are reading is a reflection of their culture of the day versus. Versus how much is the word of the Lord embedded within a culture of the day? And it's really not any different than what we have to ask ourselves with every decision and every 
uh, you know, every major certainly political or social decision we have and even decisions within our families, how much how much am I reflecting my culture versus how much am I reflecting or seeking to follow the will and way of God? Uh, scary thought. It's scary thought, yes. It's scary thought. But that dimension is, is here. So um, Charles's theological summary of the Old Testament, and then I'll do the New Testament. We're, we've got a good, good schedule now. Uh, I'm on the middle of page 7. Israel's faith was formed not only in relation to the common social structures around them, but also resulted in an effort to reshape aspects of Israel's community to conform more closely to the heart of faith. That's kind of a fancy way of saying that, you know, we as faithful people are always, we always try to be aware of, of what we're inheriting from our community and what we need what our faith is calling us to try to reshape, both to do differently as individuals, but even to to try to reshape the society in which we live. This relationship remains subtle. Uh, Childs is a very, uh, I think, cautious interpreter of of the nature of change in the Bible in all of his writings, but he, he basically says nowhere does the Old Testament address the issue in principle nor propose a social program radically to alter its institutional life. He interprets the Old, the Old, Testament, Old Testament as bearing witness to change that is often a result of many factors, both religious and political, and, um, and developing over the centuries. Um, I identify with that. I like that. I would rather to be. I would rather be someone. But you know that serves me well. I would rather be someone who, uh, as a person of privilege, which we all are, is able to to witness and participate in change that is gradual. Uh, if you don't have enough to eat or you're in prison, graduality doesn't always help you. You know, depending on where you're located. You may need and want more radical change more quickly. Um, so the biblical writers struggled to see the hand of God at work in their lives and bore witness to God's presence in all the, the concrete aspects of life. Um, and and I also just wanted to add here, and I'll give this this little paragraph next because I. Um, this is also an essay of Childs. It's not in this book. But I, in, in late 79, in the late 70s, he wrote another book uh, that has a chapter on sexuality. And again, this is the 1970s. It, it does not deal with um, issues of homosexuality. That was not nearly as much on the agenda or, or on the consciousness of people at that point. But Childs does a very good job in that uh, essay, I think, of basically showing that that there are three major strands of of an understanding of sexuality in the old in the Old Testament, really in the Old and New Testaments, um, and he does it by saying that these texts are con- conversing with one another, that they are referring to one another either subtly or or directly. But what he basically sees is that you have in the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs this beautiful, unbridled, practically unrestrained expression 
of, of human sexuality and love, and, and it's and it's equal between the male male and female. And he says that that draws a lot on the language from the Garden of Eden, the language of Genesis. A lot of Song of Songs takes place in a garden. A lot of the scenes are in a garden. Uh, and then he says when you when you get to Proverbs, uh, there is there is an there is an equally strong affirmation of sexual expression, but definitely contained within marriage and within a, a monogamous long-term marriage. Uh, the famous verse is, Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Let her, aff- let her affection fill you at all times with delight. Be always infatuated with her love. And Childs believes that that text is also aware of Genesis and Song of Solomon. And then, then we get to the New Testament with the famous First uh, Corinthians 7 and Paul's famous statement, it is bear, better to marry than be aflame with passion. And I love saying I have never started a wedding with that service. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here in the presence of God to join this man and woman in holy matrimony because it is better to marry than be aflame with passion. I'm really tempted to do that sometime. <laughs> And maybe the last wedding before I leave the face of this earth, I'll do it just for fun. But essentially, again, Paul gets saddled with a lot of stuff, but, but that's in the context of, of Paul's belief that Christ was about to return and his advice to everybody, slaves, people that are married, people that are not married, is to stay in the condition in which you're in because Christ is going to be here by this weekend anyway, basically. Uh, but within that context, he said, however, if you can't control yourself sexually, then go ahead and get married. That's essentially what he's saying. It's hard to construct a whole theology of marriage on that chapter, but you wouldn't believe the extent to which Christianity has. So, But, but I think Childs' essay is good about seeing the need for balance between all those three points. So, New Testament, uh, as we saw in politics, I'm still at the bottom of page seven. Uh, early Christianity drew, grew out of Judaism as a reform movement, at odds with both the Jewish religious establishment and civil authorities. Um, Jesus surrounded himself with disciples, most of whom appear to have been unmarried and celibate. Uh, We don't know that, but Peter did have a mother-in-law because they once went to his mother-in-law's house and did a significant healing there. And most people who have mother-in-laws have spouses, in my experience. But that's the only reference I think we have to, to the disciples being married. There may be another one, but I'm not aware of it. Um, disciples and members of the early Christian movement expected an imminent return of Christ after his death, which led particularly on Paul to, re- to stress remaining condition, the condition in which you were called. Uh, and then most of the, of the family values emphasis and just, you know, the marriage texts and, and guidance that the church has to offer on marriage and family is really from the pastoral epistles and, and from Ephesians. Uh, and I think it's fair to say that as the, ch- as the early church did often when it was faced with the threat of persecution or the fear of persecution, 
it really tried to mirror and adopt as many aspects of the of the society in which it lived as it could for its own safety. It, it was not a movement that tried to call attention to itself or to, to dissent from society except where it had to. And so to the extent that it adopts some of the family structures, uh, which are, are not as egalitarian as, as we are today, it's important to keep that in mind. It also, I had a really good lecture, which I can't share here because we don't have time, but there was also essentially what my friend Tom Long calls an essentialist view of gender. Uh, and, and that had some platonic elements in it and, and, uh, and, and some Hebrew elements in it too, but there, uh, there were certainly elements in Plato's philosophy and the Greco-Roman culture that, that were not particularly favorable to women. I mean, they just did not believe they had the minds or the wills or the intelligence. I mean, there, there's some reference from Plato that, I forget what it is, but their minds were like fluttering birds. I mean, it's just, it's hard to build a modern understanding of marriage, you know, based on on some of those attitudes. But that that's somewhat reflected in, in the, the later writings in the New Testament, which, which have formed a lot of traditional thinking about marriage. So what I what I yes yeah we can let's do a little bit of question here and then I'll go to some text and then we'll do questions okay Amy. Amy's basically saying, is, are we trying to see more or read more into the Old Testament that's positive about women than is there? There's a good old West Texas phrase for that, but I won't repeat it in here. Uh, not to what you're saying, but describing what you're saying. Um, I, I don't know. I, there are some of the texts that I'm... I think there there were two things going on, and I, I think I can say this from having just studied biblical scholars, you know, since since the 1980s. Um, the pathfinder in helping all of us deal with with terrible texts about women is Phyllis Tribble, and and what she did, she was a Southern Baptist. Woman, Union Seminary PhD, who taught at Andover Newton and Union, and then came and actually founded the Wake Forest. Wake Forest opened a divinity school about 25 years ago, and she was the first dean. But but she would not only try to see good things that are sort of hidden or are underneath the surface, 
but she actually took on what she called texts of terror, which are the horrible stories in which women are mutilated as prostitutes or raped and, and tried to tried to see if and if so what good news there is in that. And and she was sort of the pathfinder of that. Childs is a contemporary of hers and is a much more cautious scholar. But I think what he is reflecting is that once that even in historical critical methods of the Bible, which started in the 19th century and influenced all mainline training of of ministers, you know, since in the last century in this, uh, I think both Childs and Tribbles would would say that that scholarship was almost always done by men often done with German training and saw nothing, I mean, wouldn't even address the question, that, that if you read even the best scholarship, it's like it's, it follows the pattern of just ignoring the role of women or just assuming that it's, it's a suppressed role. What I have been really moved by in the last five to seven years is a Jewish scholar named Viva Zornberg, who is a, a PhD in literature at Cambridge. Her father was the chief rabbi in Israel. She's about 75 now. And she's, she uh, researches Jewish Midrash. And what she find, and Midrash is the commentary on the Bible that the Jews have done for centuries. And she finds these wonderful, wonderful stories or, or, or nuances of interpretation in which the early rabbis found roles for women that are almost hidden in the text, but but she seems to find a basis for them. I don't think... I think we have to do that work. And, but I think we have to be honest with it and say we are digging to find to find places where women can find their voice or find their affirmation in the bulk of biblical texts. It's not that much different than the West than the rest of, of literature that we read. I mean the Bible's not unique in that. It just has a special role for us. I mean you've got a you know as you read American literature or Western literature or Chaucer or you know Shakespeare, you're you're gonna face often the same dilemma. I don't know if that helps. It's a long-winded answer. I don't think it's just digging or making something up that's not there. But it, but it is. Um, I think it's there, and I think it's there because uh, no, no matter how much men are inclined to believe that it's a man's world and I know it's a man's world it still isn't really you can't keep the voices of half the population down and it is going to bubble up in texts and bubble up in writings and bubble up in people's prayers and thoughts and actions even if you're trying to keep it down so perhaps Yeah, we're yeah, 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 
Yeah, and I know that's the name of a book you're going to give a commercial about. But, but yeah, we're mining it now. And, you know, like in all mining, I mean, I spent my first five years in West Texas where they dug for oil, and, you know, you hit a lot of dry wells. But when you hit one that that's not dry, you make a lot of money. And I think that's true in the Scripture, too. When you, when you come to a story... Uh, you can ride you can ride that motorcycle for a long time, and sometimes you have to. Because so, let's turn to that. Let's let's look at a couple of stories. And with that in mind, I'll try to find something that that speaks to it, and, and more more women than just just family. Uh, I'm gonna. Because sure enough, the ones that I have are are sort of males acting out of character. Uh, So what? So I want to, I want to point to. I, I did not, I did not come into this class trying to find texts for women, but but I'm going to point, I'm going to point to a text that I think is a great story that nobody ever knows, and it's it's uh, it's in the middle of page of the next to the last page of page nine, and this is about. Paltiel, who's the husband of Michal after David rejected Michal. If you'll recall, you don't even have to recall, Michal is King Saul's daughter. Michal loves David. David marries Michal. It's a good way to get to advance your careers, marry the daughter of the king before you, okay? And then uh, Michal doesn't like David dancing in scantily attired when he brings the ark back to Jerusalem and curses him. David curses her, and she is sort of banished from the kingdom, and she ends out marrying uh, someone that she knew before, I believe. So then David rises. This is all the background. Then David rises to power, and he wants to recall Michal. He wants to bring her back to be queen, and he orders that to happen. Okay, so that's the setting and we're now at, uh, I didn't even give the, we're in the middle of, of page 9. Abner sent messengers to David at Hebron saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, Abner is Saul's general, and I will give you my support to bring all Israel over to you. So David says, Good, I will make my covenant with you. But one thing I require, because David has won the battle, of you. You shall never appear in my presence unless you bring Saul's daughter, Michal, when you come to see me. Then David sent messengers to Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife, Michal, to whom I became engaged at the price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. So Ishbael, this is the scene, verse 15. I think it's chapter 12. Ishbael sent and took Michal from her husband, Paltiel, the son of Laish. 
but her husband went with her, weeping as he walked behind her all the way to Behurim. Then Abner the general said to him, Go back home. And he went back. Now the reason I pick that is um, I think McCall's life is the story of a woman who fell in love with David and then was uh, suffered under the role of being the queen and was banished by David because she criticized him in private over his behavior. And then she married someone who's not a famous person. But she is then ordered back by the general. David is back in power. He has sent his troops, his policemen, and they get McCall to bring her back to resume that role of being queen. So it's a horrible treatment of McCall. But you have this wonderful story of an obscure and normal male husband who walks beside his wife as she is being led away by enemy troops and seems absolutely willing without shame to cry and to cry and to cry because she's being taken from him. And then the general steps in front of him and says, you go back, probably with a rifle like that, even though there weren't rifles in that day. And he turns and goes. And, and I point to that as just an example of how in in these very difficult narratives, there are these stories of human love that that bubble up because you want you know every woman in the world to be loved in that way, and you want every man in the world to love in that way, and vice versa. And I just think it takes a lot of guts for a man to shamelessly weep in front of enemy soldiers. You know, it's just, it is a great authentic moment that that I hope can be redemptive in, an, in a book that's otherwise difficult. Larry. Well, it is about government and property. I mean, it's about the power of the government to make, in this instance, a woman a piece of property. And, but, it's a, but it's a defiance of that, Larry. I think the story is a protest against that because here you've got this human being who's crying out and this second husband who's standing by her. So I think it, I think it shows, I think it shows that the, that the forces of humanity and I believe the force of the presence of God would, would be with Paltiel and McCall in that instance, not with, not with the government. It's a critique of that role, I think, is the way I would, I would read that. So.
Okay, yes, Dana. Yeah, that's good. That's a great text. I appreciate that. I always like it when people quote me against me, (laughs) which you're not doing. But I think that's, I mean, I do think that's a really good text because um, in our day, I mean, in, in, you know, my lifetime, and I'm the age of most of you all in here, you know, we, we have, I think, I think the good that we have seen in our society is that we now value people choosing to marry whom they have, in their best judgment, the most commonality with. I mean, in Virginia, when I was a kid, I didn't live here, but you know, even interracial marriage was not allowed. And and certainly the social pressures to 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 marry were not. They weren't land and property, but they were just one step removed. And I do think with with all of the the change and confusion uh, in our society around just the change around family life, I think one of the values that, that is now there is, is you really marry who you want to marry. Uh, you have a greater ability to do that or not to marry than than was the case in the 50s or 60s and 70s. I think ultimately that's that's a good thing. And and certainly that passage says, as Jesus says, who are my mothers and my brothers? Not them. It's the people who do the will of God. And doing the will of God is would be the ultimate value that we would have for ourselves and for another person. That, that we were wanting in common. So I think you're spot on on that. I'll add that if I ever do this lecture again. <laughs> okay. Yeah, Jack and then Bill. I don't know whether I'd say this. It's not a point of thing. But in my mother's lifetime, there was a certain amount
Right. Oh, I see. And there's a backlash against that. Yeah. 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 Change is hard. Yes. <laughs> I see what you're saying. I don't know if y'all heard that other than to say that he has seen the Bible used to keep women down and limit choices. And as that is cracking up, it creates a backlash and and also a lot of confusion. Yeah. Yeah. But I think, I mean, just to, and now I want to recognize Bill, the, uh, I, I think I have more and more come to read the Bible as a book of wisdom. And that it's Phyllis Tribble that, that gave this distinction it is very important to de- to decide in your own mind whether the bible is being descriptive or whether it's being prescriptive in other words where whether it is describing conditions and life and society and human beings the way we are as opposed to saying this is the way we have to be. And what Tribble says, which I appreciate, as I mean, what I deeply appreciate, is that every human being makes that decision every time you read a text. And, and what she calls for is a moral reading of Scripture, where you're reading Scripture uh, with your moral lens on. And granted, morality changes too, but 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 she doesn't let. I mean, she was raised pretty much a you know Southern Baptist, probably fundamentalist, but uh, but she doesn't let anybody off the hook from making a choice. You can't just say, well, it's the Word of God, so I don't have a choice about it. No, you do. Everybody in this room is saying, Amy and Jack and Dana, I don't have to read it. I don't have to follow it. I mean, it is a free country. You don't have to. You're not going to be arrested, I don't think, in the United States of America for saying, I'm not going to read the Old Testament or I'm not going to follow it. So so that's not an excuse. But if you read a text, uh, granted, it's not much fun to read a, a heavy text where you don't have much of a place in it. But it can be revealing about society and lead us to a wisdom of what to do about it. Let me do Bill and then Mick Loesch. Then we'll go ahead, Bill. Well, this is trivial, <laughs> and I don't mean to take away from the heavy subject, but we're <laughs> seeing it in our national pastime. There, Nothing's is- trivial about the national pastime <laughs> this day, this week in Washington. Well, there is- <laughs> baseball. Yeah, here. We, we know that there's no crying in baseball which you talked about with the story you quoted. But the big deal in the paper this morning is about Daniel Hudson mm-hmm. and the fact that he chose 
to leave the team at the height of their playoffs to be with his wife while he, while she, while they had their third child. And the way in which the Nationals reacted to that is, on a trivial level, a, a game, a, a showing how society is wrenchingly trying to change. On, on this level. So you, you're going from that old saw, there's no crying in baseball, to a man choosing to abandon his craft and his team. And I think one of the things we're seeing is how, how authoritative a team can be on an individual member's life. And what he chose to do is, is on its own trivial level pretty amazing. Yeah, that is amazing. And I'm assuming it was written into his contract that he could do that. Well, I mean, I don't know. Maybe not. Baseball, baseball, baseball now has, a has a rule, and it has been moved up into the playoffs, but this is the first time somebody's done it. Yeah. And I just hope that third child doesn't grow up saying, well, I was neglected because I was number three. <laughs> Miklosh, last question. Uh, just a remark. Uh, the state of Israel is the only country in the world that have, has a national holiday which is called the Family Day. Oh, really? Huh. Uh, That's cool. In, in Hebrew. And, uh, and uh, they, they credit uh, the, the, uh, the respect for for the family, yeah. the institution of the family, they go back to the Bible. Yeah. Okay. And and uh, what is also very important that they think that uh, that's why the democracy in Israel is so strong because of that. Uh, uh, how should I say the ethos of, yeah. uh, of uh, the unity of the family. That's cool. We have Mother's Day and Father's Day, but it doesn't quite live up to that. It doesn't sound like. Okay. You can make one observation. Yes, sir. We have to be careful to not confuse ceremony with marriage. Correct. And sometimes people just think, I'm married because I went through a ceremony. Yeah. But there were a lot of marriages before we ever invented the ceremony. Correct. And there's a lot of ceremony that doesn't follow with much of a marriage. (laughs) All right. Thank you all very much. See you next week.